0: following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, It's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcast series with this specific episode focusing on the surgical management of stress urinary incontinence in women. Uh, Joining me today is Dr. Priyanka Gupta. Dr. Gupta is Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. Uh, She did her residency training at the University of Minnesota, a fellowship thereafter at uh, Beaumont Health in Michigan, and has been on staff uh, at the University of Michigan uh, since 2016. Her practice specializes in female pelvic medicine and surgical reconstruction, and uh, Priyanka, first and foremost, uh, thank you so much for joining today. It's really uh, our pleasure to have you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be part of this. great.
1: So um, you know, I, I think the goal of of this podcast is um, similar to some of the others, which is really talking about some of the great content we have on the core curriculum. And obviously, you've authored one of those chapters and and giving our listeners a little bit of the the higher level view and then hoping that some of this will spur interest and uh, and motivation to go and, and sort of do the deep dive in the core chapter. And so looking at um, at the concept of stress urinary incontinence in women, although the the podcast is sort of titled, you know, surgical management, I you know, I think you'd be the first to say we, we don't want to dive bomb right onto the surgical aspect of it, but maybe let's just take a step back. and And when you have, say, a woman who is coming in with a diagnosis or a suspected diagnosis of stress urinary incontinence or incontinence in general, what do you start doing in the office just for helping you from a diagnosis and, and maybe some, some of the types of evaluations that you would recommend um, in this patient population?
0: Yeah, great. So I think I think that's an excellent place to start. You know, stress incontinence. When we're talking about the management of it, I think the first part of the office evaluation is crucial. You really have to spend some time with the patient, taking a really good history to differentiate between stress and urge incontinence, and what um, what their kind of main bothersome symptoms are, and then potentially what the etiologies are. So. My um, practice, and I think most FPMRS practitioners would start with a good history going over timing of symptoms, the actions and mechanisms of their symptoms, so what are the provocative things that might cause someone to leak, um, going over basic things like fluid intake, bowel habits, gynecologic history, because all of those things can certainly be drivers in how you do conservative management of incontinence. And then in the office, we'll spend some time with some additional testing. So. Um, As some of the guidelines have published, the pelvic exam is really important. So if you're able to elicit stress incontinence on your pelvic exam, then that helps prove your diagnosis and can help guide your treatment of the patient. Sometimes that can be a little bit tricky to do. So it's important to make sure the patient has a full enough bladder. And then I'll usually first examine them supine, but sometimes if you're still not able to elicit it, then having a patient stand up and cough or Valsalva can be helpful for being able to try to differentiate if they have stress incontinence. The other office things that I also would suggest and that are discussed in the core core curriculum are making sure you have a PBR, a urine analysis, and then you start to get into kind of the debate of whether or not you need urodynamics to help prove your diagnosis. So in our guidelines, we had published that um, if you can elicit stress incontinence clearly on examination, then you don't need urodynamics to continue on with your treatment of these patients. But it certainly can be helpful if you have patients where they have mixed incontinence and it's unclear if stress is a major driver. It also can be helpful for patients who have an elevated PVR and you might be concerned about obstruction or overflow incontinence. Or if there's patients that have a neurologic diagnosis and that's confounding factors as well. So that's kind of the basic things that we would start with. And then the other thing in terms of evaluation that we also discuss is the number of different types of Questionnaires that are available to help assess patient symptoms. So, the AUA Symptom Index is certainly one. And then there are several others that are really design- uh, designed to help focus on incontinence. So, those include the um, Urogenital Distress Inventory. There's the incontinence impact questionnaire. There's the incontinence severity index. So there's, um, there's several of them that are listed in the core curriculum, and they talk about what are the different conditions that they specifically try to emphasize.
1: So um, you, you talked about it a little bit, but maybe I'd ask you, so when you have sort of these patients and, and you're trying to sift through um, the stress component, the urge, or is this a mixed incontinence? Do you have sort of a ballpark in your, like, I mean, how many of them sort of fall into clean, like this is stress, this is urge, or, or do you find that it, it's actually difficult to sort of drop people into buckets? What's your sort of experience with that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think my experience is, is that most patients that we see are a mixed, bag of these symptoms. And so it's pretty rare that you have a patient that is pure stress incontinence. I think the majority of the people we see in our practices tend to have a mix of these symptoms. And so that's where um, I think really trying to understand the severity of each component of their incontinence is important. And another thing that I um, really focus on, I think, and this helps when you start thinking about surgical management, expectation management, is trying to understand what bothers the patient the most. So, you know, sometimes patients will have mixed incontinence, but they're most bothered by the urge component of it. And they say, yeah, I leak with coughing or sneezing, but that doesn't really bother me. It's that urgency that is really affecting my quality of life. And so then you can kind of go down the pathway of treating OAB. Whereas other patients might come in and say, no, you know, I want to be able to run and exercise and that's affecting my quality of life. And so then you can focus more on the stress incontinence.
1: And, and, and I'm asking from a point of ignorance, cause this mm-hmm. is not a, a big part of my practice, but, um, I feel like, you know, when you read about this, people talk about voiding diary and pad tests. Mm-hmm. Is that what, so say you have a patient coming to you in the office, um, are these part of your standard sort of questionnaire and evaluation mm-hmm. is you know do you do a voiding diary for how long do you do it for do you, do you get a pad test what what does it mean to you when you get a pad test maybe those two questions there
0: yeah so i i definitely use voiding diaries i think those can be very helpful and i usually have patients complete a 3 day voiding diary um, I do think that voiding diaries are only as good as the information that patients are willing to give you. So we try to provide some, I think some education is important so they know how to actually fill them out. Um, But I do find them helpful, particularly for looking at patients' fluid intake and what they're, you know, cause sometimes you'll find out how much they're drinking when they do their voiding diaries and that can be helpful too in managing some of their symptoms. You know, the pad test, I would say it's something we talk a lot about in the literature and I don't find it that useful personally. Um, I, I do think there are certain situations where I think it can be helpful and sometimes it can be helpful when patients have s- symptoms that don't seem to add up with what you're seeing on your testing then sometimes a pad test can be helpful because if they say I'm changing eight pads a day, but they bring them in and they're mostly dry, then that's that can help you with the degree and the severity of their symptoms. But otherwise, in general, I would say for most female patients and treating stress incontinence, I don't find the pad test very helpful.
1: And, and then maybe my last question for you in this realm is, Um, you, you talked about, and I, I know that it comes up every now and then in the journals, right? Urodynamics versus no Mm -hmm. urinamics. Um, and and it's always jumped out to me that before you get down the realm, especially for surgical management, it's almost like I'd want to make sure that I know exactly what I'm operating on before I operate on it. Um, is there enough information that you generally feel like you can elicit from a history and physical examination? that can obviate a urodynamics evaluation or, or and maybe you touched on that a little bit, but maybe I'll bring you back to that. And just maybe in your own practice,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when patients are going for surgery, how many of them have really had urodynamics before maybe they, they get to the operating room?
0: Yeah, I would say probably about 60 to 70% of my patients have had urodynamics. I think that there is there is certainly a percentage of patients where I think between the history the physical exam, it's very clear what their situation is. And particularly some of the, I would say probably the patients that are in that 30 to early fifties range that have very clear stress incontinence. Um, They don't have other bothersome symptoms. I've seen, I see urethral hypermobility on exam. I can see their stress incontinence. Those patients I feel pretty think that also makes me feel better about the um, about going ahead to the operating room. I think it's the patients where there's a mixed picture, there's other confounding factors where then I will use urodynamics or other, you know, potential urodynamics to help uh, decide if the operating room is the right choice for them.
1: Got it. So let's just say, let's now maybe go more onto just a stress urinary incontinence. So let's mm-hmm. say you, whether you've done your office evaluation or the urodynamics, but you, at this point, we're thinking more that a patient, a woman has stress urinary incontinence. Talk to us a little bit about, um, and we'll go from maybe conservative to to, to, to less conservative or or operative procedures. What are some of the non-surgical treatments Mm -hmm. and and who is appropriate for these non-surgical treatments when you're looking at stress urinary incontinence?
0: Yeah, so the, the non-surgical treatments fall into a couple categories. So there's physical therapy, and then there are, you know, a variety of vaginal support devices is maybe how I'll characterize them. And I think um, I think really any patient is appropriate for these if they're interested in them. And I always counsel patients that if they want to start with something conservative, that's very reasonable. Um, you can of, again, given that we're doing quality of life surgeries, I never want patients to feel like they're being pushed into a surgery. And so I think everyone is appropriate for conservative management. Um, I do think, so the, the literature certainly would support this. I think pelvic floor physical therapy is very effective, um, but tends to be most effective in the patients with more mild symptoms, I think, in terms of really seeing a significant improvement. But it I think if patients engage with the physical therapy, it can work very well, but if they don't engage with it, then obviously they may not see great benefit. And then the second category I mentioned that's again, more conservative is sort of the variety of different um, vaginal or urethral devices. And these continue to evolve with time. Um, There are now some urethral inserts that are silicone tubes that can be placed in the urethra to create obstruction. Again, sometimes those can be a little bit uncomfortable for patients. There are uh, tampons, um, incontinence tampons that are sold over the counter that are made by Poise. Um, that's one brand that makes them, but they um, have essentially sort of a knob that sits under the urethra to help provide support. And those I find to be really popular with some of the younger patients who have mild incontinence. It's really bothers someone bothers they're exercising or mm. um, you know, on a trampoline or something. And so some of my patients really like the tampons. They're easy to take in and out and if it's more specific events then they can wear them when they need them Hmm. um and then there are you know then there are pessaries uh, and those have obviously been around for a long time and have there are a variety of different shapes of pessaries but they have a knob and like the tampon provides support but are reusable and i would say that those Pessaries for some patients, they can be really uncomfortable, particularly older patients who have vaginal atrophy and narrowing. It can be hard for patients to take them in and out. So I think, again, it depends on the patient, but there are certain patients who prefer a pessary and there's some who just find them very uncomfortable. But those are something that I think is important to discuss with every patient. I think they should know what their conservative options are before you offer them surgical therapy.
1: So... Um... Just one practical question with regards to, to pelvic floor therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. um, do you, who, who does that? Who, who, and do you work with a, a, like, for example, a certified pelvic floor therapist? Is there somebody, for example, in your practice, that's your Mm go-to because you know, that person will give the type of instruction or the, 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 maybe the right instruction versus somebody that might be a more general physical therapist? Um, How do you sort of functionally incorporate that person group of persons into your practice
0: yeah so you know we're a i would say a quaternary referral center at michigan and um we have so we have physical therapists within our system most people who practice pelvic floor physical therapy are required to get a certification in pelvic floor physical therapy so those therapists need to have specialized training in doing this kind of work but again level of experience obviously varies depending on where people practice and what they're comfortable with and so at least in our practice, we have we have a group within our system that we refer to. And then there are other therapists, for example, Beaumont's not too far from us who we also work with and who are um, very experienced. So I tend to send if my patients live close enough, I tend to send them to the therapists that I know that have um, that I know have good, um, good records, good experience. But the other thing we do is we have we keep a fairly updated list of physical therapists in the state who are um, licensed in pelvic floor physical therapy. And we often will provide patients with that list because a lot of our patients come from around the state for referrals to us. And so we'll often give them a list of places they can go so that maybe they can find something closer to home.
1: So what about um, laser therapy? Where, where, where does laser therapy fit into this, this sort of equation?
0: Yeah. So, you know, that's sort of, a again, one of these newer um, therapies that we're looking at is the vaginal laser therapy. And it's, you know, it's been FDA approved. So Renessa is one of the newer um, ones that's been approved. But so far, the the data has not shown that it's necessarily any better than standard physical therapy. And so there was a Cochrane review done to look at um, women who received a sham versus um, vaginal laser therapy, and they really couldn't determine any significant improved efficacy from the laser. So I would say that remains to be seen at this point in time. And most FPMRS practitioners are not recommending it as a routine therapy.
1: And, and would this be done in the office? Like yeah. it's an office-based procedure. Mm-hmm.
0: It's an office-based procedure, <laughs> exactly.
1: So, so now let's take a patient who, um, let say, has stress urinary incontinence and you've tried, as you alluded to, there's no harm in trying a conservative approach, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you try pelvic floor therapy, and maybe they even try uh, one of the, the, the pessaries or the tampons that you mentioned, and they're still having um, uh, sort of refractory incontinence. So it's, it's, it's progressed through your conservative management options. What's sort of the next, in the, maybe in the escalation scheme of how you mm-hmm. think about these patients, what do you do for those that fail conservative therapy?
0: Right, so then I think we really are left with two choices, and I think, um, and we can touch on historical things, but at this point in time, I think most of us practice with either offering offering bulking agents or slings, and then the slings could be either a synthetic sling or a fascial sling, and that's kind of our categories of therapy if someone's failed conservative management. And so um, one of the things we talk about in the core curriculum is looking a little bit at um, what is some of the mechanism of their stress incontinence so uh, particularly a synthetic sling is most effective for patients that have urethral hypermobility so that's something that you assess on exam and you should see movement of the urethra because the sling is really correcting that anatomic movement if they don't have a lot of movement then it's then a mesh or a synthetic sling is probably not going to be as effective. And those are patients that we would say might have a component of intrinsic sphincter deficiency. And those are people that you may think about offering a bulking agent or an autologous sling, which you can make more compressive. So those are, that's one thing to sort of think about. And we talk a lot about how to differentiate some of those things um, and evaluation, but a lot of times we would still offer the patients those three choices.
1: So, so when you're looking at this, um, this intrinsic sphincter deficiency, Mm -hmm. so do do we still measure, again, asking from Mm -hmm. a point of ignorance, do we still measure that, like the Valsalva leak point pressure that that's something, and is that what drives you to, to know whether the patient has ISD?
0: Yeah, so we do still measure it. And so we still use the urodynamic findings of um, basalva leak point pressure less than 60 um, when you're doing urodynamics. But I think along with that is mechanism and exam can be really important. And so, um, you know, we talk about this whole idea of a fixed urethra and that's really something that you do see on exam where the urethra just doesn't move. And then I think other parts of the patient's history can drive you sometimes to that diagnosis. Maybe they've had radiation, they've had, um, you know, multiple procedures done vaginally, maybe some prolapse repairs, maybe they've had a sling already. And so you, you have other factors that make you suspicious that this is part of the problem, and then the exam can help confirm that.
1: So so based on what you're saying, let's just take, for example, bulking agents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the type of patient that would be most appropriate for a bulking agent is somebody who does not have urethral hypermobility. Is that correct?
0: Correct. And then
1: has some evidence, either from their history or from from urodynamic studies of ISD. Is that, is mm-hmm. that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, oh, and
1: true, what, what do you use? Like what, 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 bulk yeah. do you, like, where do you do this? What do you use? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it work?
0: Yeah. So I think this is um, one of those areas that I think is really undergoing um, evolution right now. in FPMRS camera. Different uh, materials over the years. So, you know, we've had autologous fat, we've had Collagen. There have been silicone implants. Um, More recently, I think people have been using coaptite and macroplastic, were sort of two of the more um, more popular in vogue um, bulking agents. And then in the last three years, this this field has sort of changed a lot. We've been using a newer agent called Bulkamid, which is made of a polyacrylamide hydrogel, and um, it's been used in Europe for about seven years, in the States for about three. FDA approval was in 2019, and I think that this is really changing practice for a lot of us, and it will be interesting to see. I think the the long-term data is still to be determined, but with bulking agents, historically, the success rate was lower. So we would tell people, you know, 60 to 70% improvement in your symptoms, and we often were re-injecting people within one or two years. So if you look at kind of all of the studies that are in the core curriculum, there's a big table talking about all the different outcomes of the various bulking agents. And again, you you see that the improvement rates are not great. And so because of that, I think bulking agents were often reserved for patients that were more frail, had significant ISD, where you felt that, you know, doing a repeated ejection was maybe all, was your only option that you were sort of left with. Bulcamid, on the other hand, the European data is looking very good with good outcomes. You know, sixty to seventy percent of patients still doing well at seventy years, or seventy years, excuse me, seven years, and um, you know, so so that's certainly much more promising than the bulking agents that we had before. Um, in addition, some of the data is showing that there may be less tissue inflammation around the bulking agents. So one of the concerns with prior agents was that if you did have to go back and do a sling procedure or something else, if there was a lot of inflammation in the periurethral tissue, you know, more risk of damage and erosion and things like that. Um, So some people are offering bulking agents more, uh, more commonly as a first line therapy before a sling and that there's certainly more of that happening currently. so I think that's it's going to be an area to watch, and I think the data from from the U.S. is something that we're going to be looking at a lot more over the next couple of years.
1: So it sounds like one of the advantages of these newer agents is is longer durability, mm-hmm, is exactly. Sort of you're highlighting, and then I guess my my uh, some of my questions with with bulking agents are mm-hmm. um, are these are these done in the office or these need to be done in an in, in operating room? Where, where are these typically? Yes.
0: Done? So it's a mix of both. Um, I think some of it depends on the comfort of the practitioner and your setup in the office. I do both. I do a fair number in the office. Um, we have a good procedure room and I think, um, with a periurethral block, a lot of patients tolerate a bulking age in the office very well. And again, particularly for some of the older patients, I think it's a it saves a trip to the operating room. It's you no, know, you know, we're not giving them anesthesia. So there's certainly an advantage to doing it in the office. Um, there are some patients though, particularly with this newer agent, the scope is a little bit shorter. So there are certain patients with a higher BMI um, or other comorbidities where I think it's a better injection done in the operating room where you have better visibility. Um, in kind of surveying other FPMRS practitioners, I would say it's a mix about 50 50 of where people are performing these. Um, but again, both in the office and the operating room.
1: And then um, complications wise, I mean, uh, what are the, I'm guessing urinary retention may, may play into mm-hmm. this just if you, if with the edema post-procedure, but mm-hmm. does that occur? How often, and what else do you quote patients as potential complications for the bulking procedure? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the, you know, the bulking agents in general, the, so urinary retention is certainly a risk. Um, in general, I would say it's probably less than 5%. So okay. most patients usually do quite well. Um, and oftentimes, if they do have retention immediately after the injection, if you catheterize them it once, it often will resolve it. Um, or just leaving a catheter for 24 hours can sort of allow things to stretch open enough. Um, the other things that are risks are, of course, UTI, hematuria. And um, there are, you know, there are some case reports of erosions of the material and patients developing bladder stones or other things down the road. And so those are certainly risks of a bulking agent.
1: So you spoke a a a little while ago about um, sort of the different surgical approaches, uh, bulking agents, we just spent some time talking about, and then you sort of alluded to Uh, the two different types of slings that you sort of have in your armamentarium, you know, the autologous fascist sling versus any of the synthetic slings. Maybe, um, and I I don't know if you want to do one or the other, or you want to sort of talk about, but how do you sort of make the decision process regarding one versus the other? I'm, I'm guessing the autologous fascist sling um, probably has a little bit more morbidity associated mm-hmm. with it. So, what what would drive you to use that modality versus maybe the synthetic, which which obviously doesn't need to harvest uh, harvest uh, fascia mm-hmm. from the patient?
0: Yeah. So maybe I'll start by talking about synthetic slings first. So, you know, I think that uh, synthetic slings. So, you know, the the guidelines and as well as all the professional societies, we feel that synthetic slings are still kind of the gold standard for straightforward stress incontinence that you've proven, you know, either on exam or your dynamics. And so I think for a first operation, um, synthetic mid slings are still our go-to for a few of the reasons that you were alluding to. So one, the morbidity is much less. So in general, you know, patients have very little pain. It's an outpatient surgery. Um, secondly, uh by, by mechanism of action, synthetic slings tend to be a little less obstructive than a fascial sling. So, patients tend to be less likely to develop problems with increased urgency and frequency, urinary retention, or needing to catheterize um, intermittent cath after surgery. So, those are certainly the driving factors towards synthetic slings. Um, I find that they are um, extremely effective in my practice. I think they work very well for patients who have um, kind of uncomplicated stress incontinence. So that's usually my go-to of what I would offer first, Um, as long as the patient doesn't have a lot of concerns about mesh. And um, that's something that we don't talk a lot about in the core curriculum, but certainly um, mesh concerns have, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about mesh, um, you know, litigation and concerns. But... Um, I think that most patients, when you have an informed discussion about mesh, a lot of patients feel much more comfortable proceeding once you've kind of informed them about some of the risks associated with it. In regards to fascial slings. So again, I mentioned earlier, my practice is a, you know, we're a quaternary referral center. So I tend to probably do more fascial slings than an average practitioner, just because I do see a lot of complex patients. And so I think fascial slings are very useful when you have people for, so a few different reasons. Um, One, if you have patients that have had mesh complications or mesh erosions, you certainly don't want to place more mesh in these patients. So in those patients, I certainly would go straight to a fascial sling. Um, Other patients are neurogenic patients. So some of our patients that have neurogenic bladder and stress incontinence who are performing intermittent cath, sometimes you want a very tight and um, obstructive sling, and you can't achieve that with mesh, but you can with fascia because you can make it tight. Um, With mesh, you would worry about erosion if you made it too tight. Um, So those are patients that are good candidates for fascial slings as well. Um, And then, of course, there's the group of patients who are really nervous about mesh. And in that group of patients, I think being able to offer an autologous sling is a good option so that they have something um, that they may not be worried or concerned about.
1: So when you talk about the synthetic slings and you you sort of look at you know transobdurator mm-hmm. retropubic or single incision is this sort of dealer's choice or are there some sort of differences in in outcomes or complications that may impact you using one modality versus another for individual patients
0: Yeah so so in general if you some of the pivotal studies including for example the Thomas trial where they compared you know retropubic and Transabductor slings, all of the data has really borne out that there's really no difference in outcomes between the two slings. So because of that, I counsel our fellows who train here in FPMRS and our residents that, you know, if, if anything, you should pick one sling and be good at it. And I think that's how most of us in the field feel. And so in general, when it comes to that choice, I think it's a little bit of dealer's choice of what you're comfortable with. However, I do think there are some nuances between the slings that can drive your choice. So for me in my practice, because again, I see sometimes more complex patients um, looking at kind of the nuances of the data, the retropubic direction is thought to be slightly more obstructive in the way that the sling is performed. And so there, if you look at all of the studies, there's a little bit of a higher risk of increased urgency and frequency with a retropubic sling compared to a transobturator sling. Um, However, long-term outcomes seem to be a little bit better with a retropubic sling. With transobturator slings, you have the benefit of avoiding the retropubic space, so you reduce any risk of bowel injury um, and decreased risk of bladder injury as well when you go transobturator. But there is an increased risk of mesh extrusion, so there's a little bit of a higher rate of that happening with the transobturator approach, and then also an increased rate of groin pain. So because of that, sometimes that drives my decision. If I have a complex patient that's had a lot of abdominal reconstruction and I want to avoid their retropubic space, I might choose a trans sling. On the other hand, if I have a young patient who runs a lot, I might favor a retropubic sling because I avoid their obturator space. The single incision sling, I think, is sort of the the one that I would say is a little bit up in the air. Um, Initially, some of the initial single incision slings that had first come on the market um, had really terrible outcomes and were removed. Um, so, So they skewed the data. If you look at a lot of the studies, they're a little bit skewed because of those initial single incision slings. I think this newer generation of single incision slings certainly has better outcomes and is looking to be equivalent to the transobturator and retropubic slings. We just don't have as much long-term data with it. So I think that's where that still remains to be seen a little bit. But I do think that some of the newer generation single incision slings are also just as effective. So due to that, I would say that it does become a little bit of dealer's choice in terms of um, practitioner comfort. And I encourage pra- people to stick with a sling that they know well and do that one because you're good at handling it. You know how to tension it. And I think that is important for patient outcomes.
1: And then just maybe to finish the the, the thought on this uh, topic, when you think about erosion, for example, mm-hmm. with the synthetic slings, what's, and maybe your your numbers are probably lower just because you're a high volume surgeon, but what are the ballpark numbers that you sort of counsel patients about about the mm-hmm. risk of erosion and therefore, you know, mesh extrusion or reoperative mm-hmm. surgery for erosion.
0: Yeah. So for um, for mesh extrusion, if you kind of look at some of the the multi, um, either multi-institutional studies or some of the meta-analysis, I would say for obturator slings, the general rate we quote is three to five percent rates of mesh extrusion. And for retropubic slings, about 1%. And so I think, and I think that's borne out in most of the literature, um, so that's usually what I counsel patients on as well.
1: Great. Well, Priyanka, I really want to thank you. It was really a very thoughtful discussion. I think, uh, obviously, since you've written the chapter, you're able to, to summarize a lot of the high points, and, and I would certainly say for our, our listeners that if there's any content that we covered today that you'd like in greater detail... Uh, I think there's a great in-depth chapter uh, that's been uh, constructed uh, by Dr. Gupta and uh, colleagues in the core curriculum. So Priyanka, first of all, thank you so much for your time. It's really uh, much appreciated today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it.
1: And uh, for our audience, for any more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Uh, have a great day. And again, appreciate the time.
0: Thanks.